0: Hello, my name is Lawrence Woodruff, and my AVID students earned a pizza party.
1: And I'm Michael Ralph, and my company earned a holiday party. Professional development requires ongoing reflection and dialogue. So join us as we spend our Saturday discussing education research and drinking beer.
0: Today, we are drinking Chimay Grand Reserve, a dark Belgian ale from the Scormont Trappist Monastery. This is a dark ale. Yeah. This, this is our second uncorking.
1: Happy holidays. It is, it's fancy. It's got wire, very much like a champagne type of a vibe to it.
0: Woo! This is a nine percenter. Uh, kind of looks like I poured a root beer and it does definitely have, it's opaque, but it's lighter, it's a lighter, it's brown, it's not yellow, but it's a lighter brown.
1: It's so aromatic, like before I even put my nose in the, in the glass, I was smelling it. Hint, uh, hints of sweet and hints of sour in there. I really like ales and this smells like all the things I like about ales. All right, we'll tell you more
0: later. What are we doing today, Dr. Ralph?
1: Student underachievement occurs when students' day-to-day class performance is lower than their test scores predict it should be. We read a review of research that shows the causes of underachievement can vary widely. Still, it gives teachers some useful starting points when trying to help a student reach their full potential. Later, we discussed some recent coverage of AI and student cheating. We reflect on how student use of artificial intelligence, whether or not it is teacher approved, may sit in relation to our classroom values. Let's get started. For our first segment, we read academic underachievement and its motivational and self-regulated learning correlates,
0: a meta-analytic review of 80 years of research. This was written by Carlton Fong, Erica Patal, Kate Snyder, Megan Hoff, Sarah Jones, and Robin Zuniga-Ortega. Special thank you to Dr. Fong for making the
1: paper available to us to read. This was published in Educational Research Review in 2023. This meta-analytic review examines 80 years of research in 125 research works, encompassing 56,640 students. Findings highlight the complex interplay of motivational and self-regulated factors such as locus of control, confidence beliefs, and autonomous motivation. I cued this paper because I like Carlton Fong. Uh, I appreciate the stuff that he writes and this, the work that he does. And he was talking about this paper publishing a while back. Uh, I say a while back, like a couple of months ago. Uh, and I was like, "Oh, neat! Can I have a copy?" And he's like, "Sure." I was like, "Cool. We'll we'll read it on the show eventually." It looks um, it looks the topic looks interesting. I after I I was joking a few uh, maybe this was maybe about a year ago. I was joking about whether or not we should be reading mostly or entirely reviews and meta-analyses. And then I find myself queuing up meta-analyses like constantly ever since then. Um, so the algorithm is algorithming. Um, but uh, I was like, the underachievement is an interesting idea. I don't, not, I don't know that it's one that I've ever formally um, investigated as far as reading about. Uh, and as I got into reading the paper, I realized just how true that is. I even overestimated what I thought I knew about it. And so, uh, so it was a good opportunity, I think, to get a, an initial exposure to what we currently know about this idea of underachievement.
0: And underachievement is not the same thing as low achievement. This is when there's a discrepancy between performance indicators and classroom uh performance basically so if you've got a standardized tests and an individual scores really high or we do a skills assessment and they score really high but then in the classroom they do not achieve or perform complete the behaviors tasks expectations to earn uh, commensurate grades that is how we're defining up op- uh, underachievement
1: and this idea of underachievement, as they lay out in their literature review, has most often been applied to students in gifted programs. When they talk about students who have very high placement scores, students who have very high standardized test scores, but then maybe underperforming in class grades or task completion, project completion um, in their day-to-day or semester-to-semester work. And so a lot of the research that we currently have Not all of it, but a lot of it has been focused on gifted students who are achieving at very high levels compared to gifted students who are not achieving at very high levels. But something that they point out very strongly early on in their review is that that is not the limitation of the application of the term. There are students at a wide variety of readiness levels in a wide variety of courses who can be underachieving. And really, uh, Lawrence, I thought of you early on in my notes. I literally wrote it down. This is basically anyone who is not struggling well,
0: this reading this paper was challenging for me. I feel strongly about some of the things that they discussed in this paper. And I don't disagree with any of the things that they said in this paper. Um, but I am uncomfortable with gifted as a label and as a system. Just almost across the board. Just this past week. I had a student in class who was unchallenged by the material and experiences that I was giving as part of my standard experience in the class. And this student was beginning to have disruptive off-task behaviors. And I didn't have a good, um, we'll say, relevant extension to what we were doing on hand, but I do have a stack of at-the-ready Uh, And I rarely use, I think I've given them to two students this year. Um, Those old Dell logic problem matrices with the postulates and you, you go through if then statements and you know, If person C could not have been at place D. Well, that meant B who was at place D couldn't be the truck driver, right? Those kinds of things. And I gave him one of those and he was excited to do it. He said, Oh, do you like these? I said, I do said, and he said, I bet I can beat you. And I was like, Okay. And so my students were working independently. They did not need me. They needed about 15, 20 minutes to just work before we got to a phase where we could get some feedback from each other. So I was like, okay, I'm, they're going to be quiet for about 20 minutes. Sure, I'll sit down and do this. And this was not my first time doing these. I very much enjoyed them growing up. And I was able to complete that one in about 10 minutes. And I, I presented it to him, and he was maybe a fourth done, and he was shocked. He was shocked. And he said, and he literally said, and I said, and I, and he was dismayed and he communicated that. And I said, well, I've been doing this, you know, for like 35 years now. I mean, I really like these puzzles. I've been doing them a lot. And he said, but I'm supposed to be gifted. That is literally what he said to me this week. And so I'm reading this paper, and what I did is th- there are some other articles that I have at the ready talking about some of the complications with the label of gifted. And by the next day, I had printed out those sources, and I said, this is what I want you to do today during our time. And I he read that, and we haven't yet had a discussion to debrief it, but um, recognizing basically that people do have different developmental rates. And the brain doesn't just linearly develop at the same rate, each suborgan in the brain developing at the same time for the same person each at each moment. So if you've got a second grader who's doing advanced fifth grade things and you slap on them the gifted label, there's a possibility by fifth grade, everybody else is caught up. And if they hadn't been like, they might you might consider that they have an opportunity to develop quote a lead but if they don't work it then it's not going to be a lead and I think that we create a lot of this is this is me just surmising but I've kind of made a lot of my classroom experiences based on this surmising that if if you don't work the skills that you have you are not going to achieve excellency and a lot of that is is echoed in a lot of the sentiments of this paper that like you said Ralph there's productive struggle and you got to struggle well to to be able to 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 grow and achieve toward things
1: well i think just meeting you where you're at i don't know i don't know what will become of this segment i don't right. know what will become of this entire episode right exactly um, cuz I think you and I are in very similar places if i'm not even a little harder line the direction that you're that you're indicating with regard to gifted programs. Thinking about my positionality relative to this paper, I was this student. Like, I was a student who got put into a gifted program, who absolutely externalized my locus of control heavily. So reading all of this, what... I'm also thinking about our conversation with, um, Dr. Tipton a few months ago and her discussion of how to read Mm meta-analyses and like, what does a good meta-analysis say? And where does it come up? Because a lot of their findings, they've got a whole list and we'll talk about a few of them by name here in a minute, but they've got a whole list of things that, that they studied are these different ideas. Like, do you externalize the locus of control? Like, do you have mastery goals? Um, Do you have self-regulated learning strategies? These sorts of things, are they associated with underperformance or underachievement? And thinking about how to read a meta-analysis, it's very often about for whom does this work? For whom does this connection exist? How strong is it? And what does that tell us about what we should do in some contexts?
0: and it reveals holes in the study because they're like, well, there weren't enough studies about this for us to do a meta-analysis. So that was good as well. And so for a lot of these things, they
1: very the authors very clearly presented both the strength of the impact or the connection and the degree of heterogeneity, like how much difference is there um, across that analysis. And I thought that was really interesting because so many of these things was sometimes the connection of so many of these things are yes for me in my own personal story i was a disaffected gifted student who did almost entirely coast avoided challenge and then directed those energies to other things that is that is all that is spot on my own personal story that's not true of other underperforming gifted students who have different stories and so they're there in many cases, I think is going to be important to think about possible explanations. If I am one classroom teacher and I'm thinking about a student in my classroom who I think might be underachieving, they might be capable of more than what they're, they're doing in my classroom. I think that really this paper is giving us some things that are worth considering because none of them is guaranteed to be the thing for everybody, but they can give you some good starting places of do I need to consider the value of what I'm offering them and whether they see whether they see connection to what's important to them? Is it important that we talk about their mindset and their malleability and the importance of practicing their skills? Like the, these are things that it's basically a checklist of maybes that can help you address something that might be coming
0: up in your classroom. And they never say the word fixed mindset or growth mindset, but it's just simmering in, in that, these concepts. This paper is so just marinating in in behaviors associated with fixed mindset approaches and behaviors associated with growth mindset approaches How do you feel about that? i would actually like to read a quote of their in their discussion was which is essentially a broad uh concise it's a concise but broad uh distillation of their findings And then from there, we can choose which branches we want to crawl down, if that's all right. Uh, So this, um, I didn't intend for this to be an outstanding quote, but here's my quote. Uh, Underachieving students tend to view themselves less positively as learners, find less value in what they are learning, regulate their learning poorly, and not be driven to develop their academic competence. They also believe that outcomes of their behaviors originate from outside themselves perhaps making it more difficult for them to feel like they are in control of their academic behaviors.
1: Yeah, so there was a there's a list of it was about 5 things I think that yeah. were that were called out in there and one of them that I want to park on first is the uh, the strongest g, the strongest effect size amongst this whole cluster and it was self-regulated learning strategies. What does that mean to you, Mr. I
0: teach self-regulated learning strategies. Uh, This paper, again, resonated with me in so many different ways. It was so, that was, I mean, I talked about um, a student labeled gifted in my college biology class, but I'm also teaching aspiring degree earners how to study and how to develop discipline and habits that are effective for improving their learning over time. We don't often conceptualize learning as a physical skill. When we think of physical skills, we might think of dribbling or free throws, or we might think of sprints or hurtling or jumps or whatever, uh, throwing darts. We might think of physical skills that way, but we don't think of learning as a physical skill. And I think that's a missed opportunity to recognize that our brain is a physical organ. And though, um, and, and so the way our brain behaves can become habitual, just like other physical skills can become habitual. Uh, and that the struggle uh, of, of of working your brain in a manner that is effective for the outcome of learning is a learnable set of behaviors. Um, you can talk to any coach and they can tell you, well, that's the wrong way to practice for this goal, or that's the wrong way to practice for that goal, or that's the wrong way to use your body for this outcome. They know those things. And as we learn more about um Physiologic, like we we've known a lot about learning um, from an outcomes perspective. Like when you do this with a student, they do that. And when you do this from a student, they do that. And as we continue to develop our understanding to look at brains and our neurology and and the chemistry and all these other different functions of our minds, um, we I, we just continue to improve that. And so, when we're talking about self-regulated learning behaviors, we're really talking about: Are you practicing in a manner consistent with your outcomes? And just like training to be excellent at free throws is gonna take hard work, commitment, discipline, and repetition, turns out if you need to train yourself to learn in the same
1: fashions and that there are two things that i want to layer on think about this the first one is this is such a shining opportunity to integrate universal design for learning in a learning context to support students wherever they are developmentally whether they are whether they are at a high readiness level or anything else Um, to be able to support them specifically in understanding the consequences of the choices they are making. And so if you're thinking to yourself, I need some strategies, I need some some practical things I can do in my classroom to help students be more intentional about recognizing the choices they can make for where and how they're doing these learning activities, universal design for learning, I think is a really great um, specific existing literature base that can plug in to meet that need. And secondly, I can I think I can look again at my own life and recognize how the narrative could play out where you have some early decisions and some lack of feedback on those decisions that sets sets it set me up for some some troubling habits. So, for example, maybe I do all of my studying while I'm watching TV. Because I did all of my studying while I was watching TV when I was when I was in high school. And that wasn't really that big a deal because I was at a higher readiness level. I was a participant in the gifted program at our particular high school. And so I was able to not fail by the existing metrics of the classroom, even though I was developing a habit for I'm used to studying with lots of other distractions in my environment. And having lots of stimuli feels good. And I'm reinforcing that loop over and over and over again. And so then when I get to college, when I get to graduate school, when I start doing, when I go to work and I need to have sustained focus and I can no longer tolerate the distractions without meaningful consequences in the quality of my work, that feels foreign to me. I, I am not equipped. I am not comfortable working in silence. Or I'm not comfortable working to music that doesn't have lyrics. I'm not used to it. I literally think I hear my phone going off because I'm used to hearing my phone go off. And if that's the first time I'm b- being exposed to it, if I don't understand what's happening, if I don't understand the physiological underpinnings of that experience, I might mistakenly believe that i it doesn't matter. I should go back to what I've practiced, what feels good, even though that they are unproductive and setting me up for increased failure.
0: I had to, I chose to step in one of my avid students has um, has some focus. Some uh, she has focus issues outside, significantly outside of the median, and um, she has consistently chosen to study at the same table as her friends throughout this semester, and it has had consequences because she'll get off topic. They will respond. Uh, and they'll be sidetracked, and they will use their time very poorly. Uh, And this is their independent time. This is the time that I'm not interfering. Well, last year, I interfered all the time. I put people... I said, no, that's not working. You got to separate. I was really... They were freshmen, and I was really going to say, this is focus-supported study. I'm not... I am not letting you listen to music. I am playing music without lyrics. You are going to listen to music that I expect you to listen to. And I was really forcing that study behavior that I thought was appropriate on them. Well, this semester, I have taken a few steps back and I say, you need to generate a, if you want to listen to music while study, then you need to listen, to, you need to generate a lyricless playlist. You need to decide who the right people to study with and who the right people to not study with are. You need to decide a lot of things. And I put that on them. But in this last week before finals, this dead week, I didn't do that. I stepped in again. And um, this particular student had been complaining about how last week she really didn't get anything done. And then I forced her to work at a table by herself and she got so much done. She's like, look at me. Look at at all the stuff that I did today. I was like, yeah, look at that. Let's think about why you were able to get all of that stuff done today compared to the past. And so she needs to have both of those experiences still to draw conclusions about how they are different so that she can better self-regulate those learning behaviors in the future. I don't know if she's an underachiever. I don't know what her scores are. You know, I don't, I don't pay too much attention. Well, it's neither here nor there, right? right? Like exactly. Finding
1: an opportunity to help people struggle more productively yeah. is something that does not need to have very very much regard at all. Right. With Th- their definition or inclusion in these more essentialist
0: frameworks. Yeah, the definition of achieving or underachieving a relative status based on two different metrics, the classroom performance and the externalized standardized performance is to some extent not directly relevant to me as a practitioner in because the interventions for better learning are the same for ev- for everybody in this particular regard.
1: And oh my gosh, that's such a perfect set like you. I want to play volleyball with you every day. The That brings me to another entry on their list and what I'm excited about. It is the only, it is the only entry on their list with a significant effect size and an insignificant amount of heterogeneity. Mastery goals. What are your goals? If you want to get better, if you want to have high degrees of competency in the things you are doing, you are less likely to underperform and that was not different across people, across all these studies, across this 80 years of research. Everything else, there was significant significant heterogeneity of like, well, for for here, but not really over there. Mastery goals, insignificant heterogeneity. Pretty consistently across the board. If you want to get better, If you have an internalized desire, you have a vision of that's what good looks like. And here I understand where I am and I want to pursue that direction. I want to polish my sphere so I can be in that place at some indeterminate time. I want to walk the path. If I'm in that place, I am significantly less likely to be underperforming.
0: Okay, full stop, the end. When I'm thinking about that particular you know, a mastery goal-oriented individual, I kind of, um, the way I operationalize that for the students that I'm thinking about is the students in my classrooms and in my AVID classes that are specifically, I do want to get better this in this, I want to get better at this versus I want to get a B or higher in this class. And that is how I'm sorting them in my head. The, the kids are saying, I want to get a B or higher in this class. Even the kids who say, I want to get an A, I want to get a 90% or higher in this class. Even those kids, they are not doing any of those activities because they want to get better. They are doing those activities because they want a record of achievement. And um, that, is, that, is a, that is useful. And this is part of that like dissonance I have as an avid teacher that since my goal is to help them achieve their goal of earning a degree, I have to acknowledge that that record of achievement matters. It matters, and we have to talk about that. But um, I can still distinguish between those that have mastery goals as a priority and those that don't. I can still have that information, and it can still be useful to me.
1: And I think even in that setting, as somebody who's never had to teach AVID, so I haven't been in that particular place, but uh, having been, I'm thinking about my experience teaching AP, which I think has a similar tension of the goal is earning this test score, even though that test score doesn't actually put you in a lab. It it doesn't actually confer to you any competency of biology in and of itself, especially biology practice. And so I think being able to clearly articulate the difference between I need to achieve these, these documentations of performance to have access to these future opportunities. And I need to do these things in order to continue to develop my competence in a, in a, in a process of lifelong improvement and pursuit of some idyllic, um, full competency state. And sometimes those things are aligned. Unfortunately, sometimes those things are opposed but being able to clearly understand which is which is an important component and it actually brings me to uh, another one of the very strong connections, which is competence beliefs. Do I understand that I am competent? Do I do I believe that I am capable, that I have ability, that I am that I that I can have ability? And that one had the greatest degree of heterogeneity by an order of magnitude. Yeah. An enormous degree of heterogeneity, Uh, meaning for some students, they're like, yeah, I I definitely could. And I just don't. You're like, okay, So then we don't need to talk about mindset because that's not the problem. Like that's we need to talk about the value of the work or your goals or what. Like we talk about other things. But for some students, it's it's I thought the grade was the performance. Right. It isn't so like we, we need to unpack like what a grade means and what's the relationship to your, to your improvement is. And that, especially if I'm working across different class contexts is going to be very different from one classroom to the next. Can I tell you something else? You and should, this, yeah. I thought about this um, when I saw that heterogeneity, of the competency least one, I thought of a specific student. Uh, I had midway through my career and I taught him in uh, freshman biology. And he was a very specific brand. He he was, he's not the same as where I was in high school, but like I hung out with people like him who he absolutely believed, perhaps even overestimated his own ability and sort of wore his disengagement like a cloak. But there I shared a passing comment where they say, well, I absolutely am like, I'm, I, I'm a gifted student. I just, I could, if I wanted to, I just don't want to. And some students even take it too far the other direction. You've been saying, if you've been saying that for five years, it might have been true in fifth grade. Right. That you could have done it if you wanted to. But then you spent five years not doing it. And now I think maybe even you know you can't do it even if you want to because you haven't been practicing it. And so that's the only out that you have is to continue to not try so that it is not exposed or revealed that you no longer can if you just chose to. And I think some of those sorts of battle scars, while they are may not be any of our individual fault, you know, I didn't teach that student five years ago. I didn't, I wasn't, I wasn't involved in that. But it is absolutely our responsibility. If we're gonna make any progress in helping them sort of restart the engine of quality practice, we will have to navigate that dissonance. We will. And when I say we, I really mean we have to help the student navigate that dissonance. You can't anymore. And that's a direct consequence of some of your choices. And you don't have to necessarily feel bad or apologize for that. But if you want to be able to, you will have to start by not being able to.
0: Yeah. I, um, I got an avid student who started actually being an avid student two weeks ago because he coasted through freshman year and then he was getting four D's this last semester. And uh, that was far too many. Um, And so instead of wasting his independent study time, instead of ignoring the assignments that were due instead of socializing with his friends during what was identified as academic time. He really just started working at all of those appropriate windows. And now as of yesterday, uh, he's got two C's and everything else is A's and B's. It's a big turnaround in two weeks. And we were talking and This was, yeah, he and I were just talking, the two of us, and he said, you know what? It feels really great. I also enjoy video games more because I don't feel guilty when I'm playing them. Right. I I felt really good about that holistically because I told him, okay, you have become an avid. Two weeks ago, you became an avid student, and this is now what it has to be like basically forever until you have that college degree. This is what it needs to be like. And he understood that, like, I think really for the first time in the program, yeah, he he was really doing as much as he can to see Avid. Avid's a great class because I don't have to do anything because nothing matters in here. That was how he was seeing it. Uh, but I think this is the first time he actually saw, oh, that's what this is all has all been about. And okay, let's get to it. Now, I, you know, I, who knows? He's a teenager, so they're inconsistent and, you know, February's going to be a terrible month for everybody. But, um... But I feel really good about that narrative so far because he sees the difference between the two ways of being. He can choose and know that there is a difference between them. There's productive struggle and there's unproductive struggle. He knows what both of them taste like.
1: Make better mistakes. For our second segment, we read, What do AI chatbots really mean for students in cheating? This was written by Carrie Spector. This was a brief interview published on Stanford's Graduate School of Education news website. This was published October 31st, 2023. So here's the thing. the You saw in the supplemental notes, I hope, that there was several news stories that are appear to be about the same topic. Uh, I saw lots of discussion on my news feeds of what appeared to be this material. And I, for the life of me, could not find the actual research. And I went looking. Like, listeners, I don't know if this context will stay on tape. I... I looked, like I really looked. I scoured the news sources. I scoured their center website. I went over their news feed. I couldn't find anything. Every news story either cited another news story or eventually traced back to this one very brief interview that's posted on their university news page where they say, we have some numbers. Take our word for it. And so... I was really frustrated because I wanted to know more about it for how much attention it was getting. Because they're really interesting numbers. Like I, I am genuinely, I want to read something about it. And was also floored by just how much impact this these proposed findings are having with such an incredibly minimal presentation of the material. And that, if that's real, if there isn't anything else, I mean, not a white paper, not a blog post, nothing. This is an interview with six quotes. And that's the whole thing. That's the whole thing. Well, so that's not either, I had something else in this slot. I replaced something for this. But then like, as it sat there, I got less comfortable with it. I was like, I don't know that we're gonna have anything to say about it and, I'm not really looking forward to reading it. I don't know. Um, and then all of this material was kicking up, and I've been avoiding putting AI on our, on our show. I I know you're not. You're not.
0: I don't think you're all that interested in it. Well, I mean, I would like to use this. Maybe this segment. Really is just an opportunity for AI positionality. It is such a hot topic, and like there's
1: a difference between not jumping on the hottest discussion. And I'll tell you what, everybody, I I already have a pretty robust uh, reputation both at my company and in our industry as like the one guy who is not impressed by AI. Like I'm the one guy who's in that place, but. Also, like obstinance and obstinance in Ludditism is, is at some point it has diminishing returns.
0: Like, yeah, if one like of it. us is a Luddite, it's definitely me. So, yeah. like, you, we're like, you can be like, I am first adopter for everything except for AI. I think they got work to do. That's fine. That's a position. You
1: but like, have. when it's time to adopt, I want to know about it. Like, I do want to think about when I'm just being obstinate. And so, so I was hoping that maybe this could be. let's let's, let's go to that place. Let's talk about it. However easy AI does or does not make it for students to cheat on your particular assessment now, how easy do you think it was to cheat 2 years ago?
0: Right.
1: It was really easy 2 years ago also. Yeah. The number of students also who aren't cheating, four years ago. yeah. <laughs> They're not not cheating cuz they can't. Yeah. And they haven't been for a long time. And that's what some of the numbers that these uh that these researchers are citing in their interview. And again, we can't we can't see their work. I can't tell you any more than just taking at face value some of their numbers. But one of the most dramatic numbers that they reference is that they, they're talking about K-12 students, about 70% of them are acknowledging
0: that they're engaged in at least one cheating behavior. No, no, last month.
1: In the last month. Thank that you.
0: the question was last yeah. month. Did that- you cheat in the last month? 70% of them 60 to 70% said they had. Yeah, most of now, them. Now, now and this is another thing that the brief interview elucidated is that they didn't ask them, "Did you cheat?" What they asked them was an array of behaviors. "Hey, did you glance at another student's test and use their answer on a test? Did you do, you know, uh, use quote somebody and then not attribute the quote? Did you So they uh, very specifically disambiguated the behaviors without identifying those behaviors as cheating. And one of the things that they noted
1: was in their most recent data, they're telling us that the prevalence of those behaviors are actually, if anything, slightly down this year compared to past years. So I think one of the problems is the salience effect of I can imagine students using ChatGPT to write a paper for me, and so it's very scary. But I think what we need to embrace is they could easily use Chegg or their parent or their friend or their anything. They had a lot of mechanisms for cheating two years ago and five years ago and 10 years ago. And so it was pretty rare for students who wanted to cheat to not be able to. So the fact that this is easy
0: doesn't actually change the landscape that much. And that's what it comes down to. I, as an avid teacher, have this luxury, luxury of this bird's eye view to see what is the work that they do for me in my class, but also show me the work that you're doing for your math teacher and show me the work that you're doing for your English teacher and show me the work that you're doing for your social studies teacher and show me the work that you're doing in science. And I can see all of this work and I can say, that is crazy different than everything else. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about that right now. Let me ask you some questions about this amazing sophomore collegiate quality work you're doing. In your 10th grade honors English class. Because I am blown away. Tell me how you came to this conclusion. And you'll immediately know that they did not write the paper. Immediately. It's not a challenge. If, again, Shannon Ralph, you know your students. If you know your students, it's not hard at all. And I guess that's why I'm not afraid because I have the luxury of teaching college classes to a high school in a high school environment where I get, I I have 90 college biology kids, but they're distributed among four sections. So I get to look at them in sections of 20 kids at a time. I get to look at my avid kids and get to know them for four years. I get the privilege and power of knowing my students. So I am not worried about AI because I can spot that a mile away because I know what they can and can't do. My, It's formative assessments every single day. So when you have the graded assessment that a robot wrote, you're like, well, a robot wrote this. Let's do it again. I'm going to watch you write it this time.
1: Well, and that's the piece that for me is so critical. And it's something that came up when we were talking with the... Um, a couple of guests who were experts in writing process the small writing prompts not that long ago the the process is almost always the point yeah and so having access to the process solves that problem i saw some folks talking about it was actually somewhere early at the time when i was becoming aware of this discussion somebody was sharing well i just asked my students to write their 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 writing assignments in a google document because It saves a version history so I can see when they wrote and when they changed everything. And so somebody who just copies and pasted the chat chat GPT response, that looks very different than seeing somebody who is literally typing out their responses, problem solved. I've never heard that and it's beautiful. The process is so often the more valuable opportunity, especially in writing, we're talking about AI as large language models, that it becomes irrelevant if you get invested in the piece that chat GPT takes away. And then this idea of cheating, I, at least cheating in this way, goes away. Other cheating things come up. like I don't, And that's an, another issue. We talked in a previous uh, uh, episode a while back about the inequities of homework. Right. And they reference it in this interview where some students have had access to parents who can write really well for a long time. Right. And so they haven't been writing their papers for, what, generations? So the fact that an AI can do it is that an an equity conferring right, device? Right, exactly. I mean that's an interesting provocation that I'm still processing
0: on. I thought about that myself. I think it's a crystallization of my approach to technology. When convenience becomes your priority, you have lost your purpose. And that is what AI is how AI makes me uncomfortable if if you've got a student who has started from scratch in paper writing five, 10, 15 times, and they know what that experience is like, and they've learned what they can learn from starting from scratch, what they've learned from that, then starting from, okay, here's an AI-generated paper, let's jump to the editing, because your editing is where you need to improve. That would be an appropriate use of the tool. But if they don't know how to start from scratch, and they can't formulate, they haven't wrestled with the ideas, they don't know about argumentation, they haven't committed or decided, they haven't thought about the material enough to feel enough about mice and men, they haven't consumed the material enough to have an emotion about mice and men, to have a position about any commentary from the book, then you're skipping productive struggle to a different skill. They're being an editor. They're being an editor of someone else's work, which maybe that's the skill you want them to have.
1: It could be its it, own productive Yeah, struggle. it
0: could be its own skill that you want them to have. But if that's consistent with your purpose, that's fine. But if convenience be- becomes your priority, then you have lost your purpose. And so that's what makes me uncomfortable about AI. I I'm, I have said on this show... This episode, how important it is to be very, very clear about your teacher priorities, both to yourself and with your students, so that they have something authentic to grab onto.
1: Know your students.
0: How was the beer? It was delightful.
1: I really enjoyed that you queued this up. I uh, the end of the bottle is not nearly as good as everything else I've had, and that's kind of disappointing. That's so funny. That's the opposite of my experience. Oh my goodness! No, that fir- that first glass was um, Grand Reserve. It was spectacular, and I want to live my whole life trying
0: to get back. Uh, it feels light. So I, I when I poured it initially, I said that it kind of looks like a a, a root beer. Um, and I can, I feel like that it feels like, it feels like a soda. It was sweet up front and sour in the back. But as time has gone on, I feel like there's been a kind of like a, uh, regression to the mean in terms of flavors and taste like it's it's all everything has become a little more muted and that may just be because i'm nine percent in on a champagne bottle of beer yeah i i loved being pulled in those two directions
1: for me the experience is that it was flattened so like because it's one bottle it's been sitting open
0: oh, and i've been harder pours it just tastes more flats to me now Founded in 1862, the Scourmont Abbey has been making beer from water drawn from a well built within its walls. They don't have to go outside to get this water, and uh, they also build cheese. They also make cheese, and all of the filtered beer solids at the end of a brew are fed to their cows for their cheese. This may be the most globally popular Trappist. Uh, beer this particular the one we're drinking today is probably the highest volume global circulation trappist beer on the planet so if you are looking for what is the median trappist experience that most people experience it is chimay grand reserve this is the most representational trappist ale
1: Thanks for tuning into another month. This has been a lot of fun talking about research, big and small, as we go through our month. Good luck with the end of your year. We are recording as the new year approaches. So good luck with your new year and with your changeover in semester. And we will see you in the spring. As we pursue growth, discuss research, and struggle well.